Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to FYI, Arc's weekly podcast on innovation and technology investing. This week, we are thrilled to speak to Silicon Valley veteran Steve Blank, serial startup founder, professor of entrepreneurship at Stanford, and along with Eric Ries, the creator of the Lean Startup Movement. Steve is the author of numerous books, such as The Startup Owner's Manual and The Four Steps to the Epiphany, which applied a scientific and data-driven approach to creating successful companies. In our discussion, we examine the state of venture capital in the midst of a coronavirus epidemic, how lean startup methodology has influenced companies large and small, East Coast versus West Coast approaches to teaching business, and the perils of the U.S. technology supply chain in the midst of increasing tensions with China. I'm James Wang, and I'm joined by my colleague, Max Friedrich. Okay, great, Steve. I thought it would be great, given your interest and in, in, in history with venture capital, just to give an overview of the state of venture capital today. In the 70s, it was almost like a, um, a cottage industry that no one's ever heard of. The 90s became uh, the hottest thing, and now it's you know cool, water cooler conversation for anyone in technology and finance. What do you think uh, has materially changed maybe in the last five to 10 years? What do you think good or bad has, uh, has evolved from in that industry? Well, pre-COVID, capital was kind of flowing in the streets, at least in Silicon Valley. And for me, having been in the Valley for almost four decades, it was amusing and, and frightening and disorienting to find that seed rounds were the equivalent to Series A's and almost B's when I was a, a young entrepreneur. And that we were uh, back to uh, internet.com uh, bubble days where uh, you made up for mistakes by just raising another round. So I wasn't sure where that was going to end up, but it was kind of interesting to, to watch it again but this time with a whole new infrastructure. Uh, you know, the word VC and entrepreneur is still used, but it has very different meanings, actually, than it did in the 20th century. You know, a venture capitalist was thought of as a professional on Sand Hill Road, and that's where risk capital lived. And, and obviously now in the 21st century, angels have become professionalized, seeds and rounds have become professionalized, capital at scale from sovereign wealth funds, from hedge funds, from whatever, basically uh, pushed out the need for an IPO for, you know, five or 10 years. And, and all that growth was now in the hands of private capital rather than the public markets. And then when things did hit the public markets, they were typically an order of magnitude or maybe two at larger valuations than they were in the 20th century. So I, and that's my point when I say, you know, the, the words are the same, but the whole architecture of the of the system was quite different and and maybe just maybe quite different in terms of uh, the size and scale of capital. The specific phenomenon you've called out of um, this elongation of going public, I guess one could maybe ask, 
why is this a bad thing? If people can grow that final in the, in the single 1 billion to 10 billion range, late stage capital, why is that bad versus kind of that happening in the public markets? Well, you know, you have to ask, why is that bad or good for who? Right? If, you're, if you're a private investor, it's great. And if you're in the public market, you know, you no longer get to play in, in tech where the greatest gains will be, you know, or hundred or thousand to one kind of step ups. You get to play, you know, at best, maybe 10 to one. So unless it's a Tesla and, and then, you know, that was just in, in hindsight, that was kind of like buying Apple at five, you know, buying Tesla at 13, which I think was something like their initial offering. And now it's at a thousand, but those are the, the real black swans. I, I think basically taking these things off the off the public market just kind of uh, now says private market has their own dynamics that fewer people get to play in. You know, I think it's been good for, for startups themselves is that they don't have pressure of activist investors, which was one of the rationales for keeping tech companies that want to reinvest in innovation rather than in dividends or, or quote shareholder value. And so there is kind of huge benefits on, on that side. You know, and with the government in the U.S. at least abandoning any uh, pretense of regulation, that probably is probably for the better. You know, I've just seen public companies' uh, research and development destroyed when they are trying to satisfy, uh, you know, we used to call them corporate raiders, and now we use the polite name, activist investors, kind of destroying, you know, fairly successful companies based on, on stock price. So, you know, given that government regulation is kind of the third rail of politics and and we've kind of given up on it um, in lieu of that I, I, I guess it's a better to have companies private longer uh, but as I said there are some downsides right now mostly upsides if I if I could uh, jump in here this kind of resonated with comments I I heard from you I think from a talk you had a couple of years ago where you differentiated between large companies or corporations and startups saying that large companies mostly execute known business models and startups still are searching for them. And as we kind of discuss now, I think there is this uh, shift where you have these in like mixed creatures of startups that have been, you know, private very long and they have found some kind of business model apparently because they're raising round after round and, like you said, there are big asset managers now also normally investing in public markets, now also investing in those companies. So they seem to have somewhat stable businesses, but still it seems also like they kind of reserve some of the privileges that startups have. And I think one privilege, I don't know if you want to call that, but of, of startups uh, just because of their nature of still in the search, being in the search of a business model, that they tend to be uh, unprofitable often as they're still testing out, you know, the product, looking for a product market fit, investing in marketing. And it seems like that some of these uh, quote-unquote startups that were private for so long have found somewhat stable business models, but at the same time, they kind of had the, so if you call it privilege, of not being very profitable. And I think we saw that last year in a couple of IPOs, and, and, and especially on the WeWork, you know, disaster, if you want to call it that, we've seen that public market investors actually don't really like that. And so, so I was wondering kind of, do you still see those, you know, very late stage pre-IPO, quote unquote, startups as real startups? 
and then maybe d did you did you perceive a shift already in perhaps the public markets not really accepting those because a lot of them turned out to be unprofitable and maybe not suited for an IPO yet. Yeah. So, Max, I think you, if I understand your question, it was, you know, everybody was praying for an Amazon, but they might have gotten Wiley Coyote. That is, I don't know if you guys have, uh, know the U.S. cartoon of Roadrunner with the coyote that that chases it uh, off the cliff and, and the coyote gets, uh, you know, about 100 feet off the cliff and doesn't realize there's no ground underneath them and, and gives you kind of the look as it's about to hit the ground. That's what most of the... Um, you know, no longer startups who are just burning cash and praying for some profitable business model uh, uh, look like. And that only worked when people kept pumping money into them. I think the pandemic kind of just brought reality to the ground of, uh, you know, certainly the public visible ones like Airbnb and the rest, but also every scooter company and everybody who was giving away a hundred dollar bill with a $10 product. It depended on, on, uh, investors in later rounds and spraying and praying. And I, I think uh, some folks are reevaluating that at the, at the high end. Do we have to go back to companies that have some sense of profitability? But I think everybody, again, was hoping for a Tesla or, or an Amazon where it just took a lot longer than a traditional business. But when it finally kicked in, it was going to kick in profitable and potentially could change the world. And I think that was the, the hope in theory. You know, in practice, I think we were running, you know, a number of large Ponzi schemes without um, actually declaring it such. And, and by that, I don't mean overt criminality, but just kind of, you know, hoping that, well, I got in on this round and maybe I could find someone else to get in the next round at a higher valuation. And I'll, I'll, the founders will take money off the table. And so will the, the series investors. You know, the world would be much different if there was some government reg that said, no, 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 you don't take, need to take any money out at all. Or you don't get to take any money out at all until there's some liquidity event in a public market. You know, just, I mean, just run that thought experiment in your head and every risk investor would just, just panic at that notion because that's not how the business is built anymore. I just want to remind you and your listeners, that's how it was actually built in the 20th century. There was no liquidity for the founders or the VCs until you went public or, you know, uh, or you got bought out. But that was in the past considered a loss. The model today and, and the whole financial structure is just completely different. Was there a specific legislation change or regulatory change that, that made it so that you could cash out earlier indirectly? No, I think it was just the it became a seller's market rather than a buyer's market for, you know, when there were few VCs and the only path to liquidity, remember, there wasn't late stage hedge funds and late stage sovereign wealth funds. The only way to get capital for scale was to go to the public markets. Big idea. Only way to get capital for scale were public markets. The minute there was huge capital available for private markets, then the founder's first complaint was, well, wait a minute. You know, I vested after four years, but now it's going to take me eight years. If, we, if ever, if we go public, I'm leaving. And, you know, the rational thing was, well, why don't you take some money off the table at the next series? Oh, okay. Well, now all of a sudden, you know, I'm no longer desperate, but I'm willing to stay. But now I'm kind of like a high paid hybrid employee that's actually better than being the CEO of a large public company because I have no public scrutiny. And oh, by the way, if you really want me to stay, um, how, how about some dual class stock where now all of a sudden the founders control the board? 
And if it's such a hot deal, the VCs will agree because they want to be in the next round. So, you know, dual class stock for at least the unicorns have also changed kind of the balance of power between founders and, I mean, go see Uber and, and the fight over over the last CEO. So, no, I don't no, I don't think of any government um, regulation change, though I might be happy to be corrected. I, I think it's the other way around. I think the SEC, I don't even know if they're still in business. In the United States, the people used to be scared of them. Now I don't think people even know they exist. And by the way, that was a bipartisan, you know, let's get the let's get them out of our business. I don't think that was good for, for the country and the ecosystem. I mean, I don't think the, you know, to be honest, I, I think if we look back at the trillions of dollars or hundreds of billions of dollars at least put into venture, how much of it has actually been great for society versus, you know, how much has been great for making money? You know, they're not any correlations by accident, at least in the United States. On that note, as we're kind of talking about the SEC, I think there was a proposal by the SEC late last year, I think in December 2019, that would kind of wipe the definition of accredited investors and how I understood it, would it make easier for you know, individuals to invest in startups? And please correct me if, if yeah, it appears that was the case. So like in, in the light of what you were just talking about, do you also have an opinion on that? And maybe could you perhaps take us a little bit back in time kind of what, what an angel investor was in, in the beginning of the Silicon Valley? Because I guess back then it, it was a much more kind of qualified or eloquent group of, of professors and maybe year-long operators and really probably experts in their areas that, um, you know. <laughs> no, Max, Max <laughs> actually, or, or I'm, laughing. <laughs> I'm laughing because angels – Angels were literally called doctors and dentists because they were. Okay. <laughs> that was at least in the seventies when I. That's that's who you went after if if you went after any of them. It was the doctor and dentist pools and the auto dealers and you know friends who saw each other quote at the club and and they pulled some money and and I don't even think they had a clue what they were investing in other than their cousin who knew a friend who knew something about. There were, I, it was only at the turn of the 21st century that angels became professionalized, or maybe during the dot-com bubble a couple of years before, but in the 70s and 80s, and, and, and certainly to the Netscape IPO, there was no professional angels stuff. And in fact, I remember when my teaching assistant, Dan Mirico, co-founded Floodgate with Mike Maples, must have been 2010 or so, that the notion of professionalized angels at scale and I remember Dave McClure starting 500 startups. I mean, though, that's only a decade or, or so ago. So it's it's quite recent that this stuff has become a another layer of uh, early stage risk capital in a professional sense. And then again, the dot com bubble also uh, gave us a whole series of experienced entrepreneurs, starting with the PayPal mafia, you know, which gave it a name. But there's now something unique which happened in tech when People make money in most other industries. They tend to buy yachts and retire to the south of France or something else. People in tech are so damn nerdy. They tend to invest in the in the stuff they kind of loved and still stay in the game. I, you know, no one's done a sociological study or anthropological study of that. But I bet you our stick rate for, for execs who make money are much higher than any other industry. Because it's like a drug. We love the tech and it's kind of fun. And gee, we know this area. And 
And I guess most of us don't play golf. I, I don't know what it is. Um, I don't know. Chris, have you seen that? Or? I think maybe it's this. It's that if, if you're an executive at Coca-Cola and, and you make a fortune, you can't really invest. You can't really take that knowledge and invest in a, 10 other food companies. Yeah. Because they're, they're, that's not a, really a thing, right? The barriers to entries are high. There are all these structural issues. But, but if you're an executive in a software uh, you know, enterprise SaaS company, you can probably just through the experience of building that company, you know 10 companies to invest in. So it has this fulfilling cycle. Yeah, I think, I think it's a really interesting uh, ecosystem that, that people really haven't realized that the, that is one of the impetuses for uh, uh, continued growth is the fact that we recirculate experienced executives. Because remember, part of this ecosystem is the mentorship and pattern recognition that young entrepreneurs get from an ecosystem that's fairly large and experienced and loves, still loves to play. And I think if I had to think about anything that's changed the angel area, it's not only the professionalization of the capital, but also the, the level of experience that is now available to early stage entrepreneurs, not just in innovation clusters, but across the country. And I noticed this in China, actually, uh, when I went there, uh, oh, I'd say 10 years ago now, you could just see the beginning of a second and, and beginning of very beginning of a third generation of serial entrepreneurs where it kind of felt at first, when I first got introduced to the Chinese entrepreneurship ecosystem, it felt like Silicon Valley in the, must have been in the early 60s. People just kind of banging into walls, not knowing what they were doing, not knowing what to, but you could just see that wave of first, you know, and second generation coaching and mentorship with enough pattern recognition that wasn't just copying what U.S. startups did, but kind of knew the lay of the land about how to work the politics, which are huge in China, how to work the government, how to uh, how to get raised money, what do you, who's needed to get the red envelope at the right time, etc. And and watching that ecosystem get built in its own uh, way was kind of a reminder of what happened Silicon Valley in the 20th century. And so it was watching that maturation of that innovation cluster with Chinese characteristics, I thought was was kind of interesting. Well, while we're on the topic of startups, you know, we've talked a lot about the investing side into startups. I, I think it's also interesting, important to touch on the founding side. Before the 70s in the U.S., when venture capital became born, I guess, there was not really a cultural norm of starting risk companies. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I had to explain to people like, no, 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 I really did have a job. In fact, I have to tell you something funny. I, I did eight startups in 21 years. And my mother, always, who was a Russian immigrant, always thought I was unemployed. And it wasn't until I was teaching at Stanford after like I made a lot of money that my mother said, I could finally tell people you have a job. <laughs> you're, you're living in a house I bought you. Oh, I always thought that was stolen money. <laughs> I said, well, it was kind of, but not, not in the way you think. So, so, that you, so yes, you know, not only did people know it, like people don't even know where Silicon Valley was because we were all selling to, you know, business to business or, or we were Defense Valley. Right. It wasn't until we got into consumer products that people realized there was such a place. I guess what I'm saying is like now the U.S. kind of planted the seed that this is a kind of a thing that people can do with their lives. And now, of course, we have um, startups as a phenomenon globally. I think the most interesting thing, in my opinion, that's that's uh, happened is in this industry is, is YC and, and incubators. That's made that's basically kind of created a machinery to create more startups. So for, for me, the question is, you know, how large uh, at human, a humanity scale, what is the capacity for startup formation of this sort, businesses of unknown outcomes? 
are we over investing or under investing in in I guess startup formation? And how big do you think this phenomenon can be? You, you know, James, I think we're limited to the number of crazy people out there. It's almost like asking, you know, assume that music lessons and art lessons were free, and and anybody could go to any you know Juilliard or any academy, etc. How many creative artists can we create given no barriers and no bounds? And the answer is probably limited. You know, there's not an infinite number of potential artists. If you believe that, well, yeah, we could train lots of people to play music, but the people who are, you know, the next Beethovens or Mozarts, we might find a few more, but they're not infinite. And I say that because I believe founders are closer to artists than any other profession. They see things that other people don't. They hear things that other people don't. And they drive themselves through the inevitable disappointment and failures because they hear music that you and I just don't hear or they see things that you and I don't hear. And they would run the experiment of something closer to home. How many artists are there if we gave everybody art lessons starting in kindergarten? And, and, and I think we'd get a lot more, but not an infinite number. And, and so, but let me, let me take a question that question and turn it on its head. You know, one could imagine capitalism didn't get handed down on stone tablets coming down from some mountain. It's oriented that all the rewards tend to be, at least today, as companies get larger. You know, they get they get to be rent seekers. The CEOs make tons of money. They, you know, what the companies get government subsidies and whatever. That's the nature of capitalism. Imagine just as a thought experiment that you turn that on its head. That as companies got larger, you have actually gave them disincentives to be larger. And what you were trying to do is actually create more startups. So, so in fact, imagine a capitalist system where, in fact, to cross 10,000 people, there was like 90% tax rate. But to start something, there was like huge government incentives. In fact, imagine taking all the incentives we give large corporations and all the tax breaks and giving them to creation of new ventures. It's not a question of whether how many entrepreneurs there are is would we have a much more interesting society creating new things at a rate that would like stagger us if we turn those incentives on the on its head just as a thought experiment i'm not even proposing it i'm just saying you know startups kind of forced their way into the 20th century model of what capitalism looked like it was kind of a unintended consequence well what if we not only double down on it what if we like just turned everything upside down if i was starting some new country somewhere, that would be the rules. I, I would say, let's run that experiment because I have to catch up with everybody else. If I had some third world economy and was the dictator right now, but I was sitting on a bunch of oil or capital or a sovereign wealth fund, that would be the experiment I would be running is how to disincentivize scale and incentivize creation in a series of very interesting domains. Just a thought. And I love that idea. I, I had a similar thought, which is if, if everyone at Google suddenly lost their jobs and the, the company was just dissolved, um, it would probably produce far more interesting outcomes than Google by itself or Alphabet by itself continuing on its present course. Right. Or, and if, or if we dissolve the Facebook, would the democracy actually survive? <laughs> which, you know, it, just as an aside, people with Facebook on their resumes are, are going to be regretting it in another five years. That's not, it'd be like having Enron on your resume. In any case, I think we take for granted the systems that we've built and live in and figure out how to make money at the edges. And, you know, some creative people are doing financial engineering as, as good as any startup. 
but imagine we just re-engineered and rethought the entire system. The problem is, of course, there's so many vested interests that's not going to happen. But there might be some country or region where they say, well, we're so far behind, but we have some assets. We might want to run this experiment. Of all places, it might be Singapore or some autonomous region in China that decides to, to kind of run this. And, and I was getting back to your answer of, like, are we kind of capped at the number of entrepreneurs and founders? Maybe, but maybe we could build another system that doesn't require everyone being an Elon Musk. It does require, gee, maybe the same kind of support we're pouring into large companies. We could pour into small business entrepreneurship. Remember when you and I talk and your audience talks about entrepreneurship, we think about scalable startups, things that become a Google and Facebook and Tesla. But in the United States, 99.5% of all startups are Main Street entrepreneurs. That is, they open restaurants or grocery stores. That is, they don't work for other people, but their vision and their potential scale and their source of capital is just radically different. What if, in fact, we had changed those incentives to say, no, 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 here's what you could become. And here are the things that will will actually help you focus on. The Small Business Administration in the United States, they look like they were built in the 1800s and they operate like they're they're in the 1950s. And so therefore, that's the output we kind of get. Speaking of other regions that could potentially, I guess, either find new ways to innovate or or catch up or maybe surpass the U.S., China or or these other, uh, Singapore, maybe Germany, do you have strong points of view on which of those places have unique potential and have done interesting things? Well, Singapore and Israel are, are you know, the two classic models. Singapore, since its inception, has been reinventing itself, you know, every 10 years into, you know, a, a different kind of startup nation and, and has figured out the, just for size and scale, probably punches above its weight continually better than any country in the world. Israel kind of went from a socialist, you know, country to one embracing full-throated capitalism in, in less than a decade, and it was done by a single office, so the office of chief scientist uh, kind of said, well, this ain't working. And now, in fact, it's very funny. You go to Israel, and like, the office of chief scientist doesn't even matter anymore. They kind of dissolved it, and, and, and now the, the ecosystem has taken over. You know, China basically copied the Israeli system in the, in the 90s rather than the U.S. and, uh, you know, with the most program and, and building uh, entrepreneurial clusters. And, and they made some massive bets and built themselves a innovation funnel on just clusters. And two of them, obviously, have taken off like gangbusters, Northwest Beijing and the Pearl River Valley. And so, you know, when you look at countries that have engineered ecosystems, Singapore, you know, Israel and China, entrepreneurial ecosystems, and one city, which was New York City. You know, it had an inklings of a, a startup culture, a pre-internet bubble, pre-20th century, collapsed almost to zero. And then when Mike Bloomberg became mayor, people forget, he was a hugely successful entrepreneur. He basically did a set of things that, uh, on a small scale, to like what China did, proved that you could engineer an ecosystem if you have both the capital and, and kind of the culture base. And ironically, they didn't have the university base, you know, which was a shock for NYU and Columbia hearing that. But so we was trying to fix that as well. So the answer is, uh, you know, interesting things can be engineered for countries with visions and, and capital. And then you see a lot of failed experiments as well in Chile and Finland and, and whatever. And, and failed, I don't mean like failed to zero, but just haven't caught fire like some of those other countries. And it's not that those experiments aren't worth 
running. It's that there, are, for each one of them, there are some interesting case studies about why they haven't caught fire. I won't name the country, but I have to tell you, uh, with Stanford, I got to visit one, and, and the government agency in charge of entrepreneurship had more people in it than entrepreneurs were in, in the entire country. <laughs> and when I was trying to explain to them, that was probably not a good ratio. You know, I was like, well, what would we do without a job? I said, well, that question is the problem. Sure. It's, it's, uh, I think we covered good ground. You know, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about kind of agile and lean startup, which, of course, you, along with your best student, Eric Ries, helped evangelize. And for those not familiar with it, it's essentially kind of applying the, the almost the spirit of the scientific method to, to, to building startups and trying to get to results and feedback uh, AS, ASAP rather than you know, build on a, a long uh, pipeline. I mean, lean startups was all the talk, uh, you know, maybe... I remember reading them 10 years ago. These things are so trendy, maybe it's just not a conversation anymore. How is, the, how is that set of principles doing? How do you see current entrepreneurs applying that or not applying it? And maybe on big companies like large companies today, do you think they've learned the lesson and are applying it correctly? So let me just remind your audience, the, the 12 people who, who don't know what Lean is, it was basically how can you, if you're resource constrained for capital, people, or time, how can you do a lot more than just simply pouring money into a set of ideas and building the ideas and then finding out the other end that no one wanted it, needed it, or came out too late? And, and the problem, of course, was we, were, we made two mistakes in the 20th century, and large companies were making this forever, is even though we believed as startups, we were visionaries, no one actually blew the whistle and said, well, most of you are hallucinating. And that we couldn't tell the difference, so we scattered a lot of capital uh, among everybody and just kind of prayed, sprayed and prayed and, and picked up what came out of the end. Plus, couple that with the only methodology we had to build products was called Waterfall, where we would spec the product and then we would put engineers in a room, feed them a lot of sugar and caffeine and open the door a year later and hopefully something came out and, and with very little customer feedback. Lean turned that on its head with two ideas. One is that we kind of appreciated that entrepreneurs potentially might be visionaries, but all they had on day one is a series of hypotheses, which was a fancy word for they were just effing guessing. And what they were guessing about were all the components of what we now call a business model. Some things fundamental, like who are the customers and what features do they want. You know, a founder used to come up with, here's the product. Well, without ever asking or testing, does Anybody other than you think this is a problem or a need that they'd pay money for. And so the, the lean methodology said, not only let's kind of break down the, the business into a set of hypotheses, let's get out of the building and test it. And that was my contribution of get out of the building. There are no facts inside the building, so get the hell outside. And what we were testing was not only who are the customers and what's the right pricing and whatever. Eric Reese's observation was, Steve, no one in the 21st century is going to use waterfall engineering. We're going to use a methodology called Agile to build products. That means we could build products and services incrementally and iteratively. And that meant we could build things called minimum viable products to put in front of customers as early as possible to get their feedback. And that allowed us to do a radical idea that never, believe it or not, never even occurred to anybody in the 20th century was this notion of a pivot. A pivot said, like, look, if you got some early data that maybe your customers are not here, but over here, you're allowed to change. <laughs> move your company, move your market. Or if you, customers are saying, we'd love features 3, 9, and 12, but the rest is crap we don't really need, you're allowed to change the product. 
That was, believe it or not, that was unheard of. You got fired if you did that. So that just made, if you, once you embraced lean, it just made you look like a blur to either a 20th century company or, or a 20th century startup or a large company you were competing with who were still using the old methodologies. And that worked great when you were capital constrained because it allowed you to kind of reduce infant mortality if you were an investor running a portfolio. And if you were a startup, it kind of increased your potential of actually you know, hitting the target with the available cash until I'd say about 2015 when infinite capital flooded into the market. And then, you know, ideas came back, which everything old became new again, the dot-com bubble idea of what uh, Breed Hoffman called blitzscaling. Blitzscaling basically said, if we have an inkling of something that might have what we call product market fit, let's throw $100 million at it. And that's probably a faster way to get a unicorn. I had no objections to it because you kind of adapt your environment. It's not that everybody abandoned lean. It's that people who could have access to that class of capital kind of found it might be even a more efficient way to kind of get to being a unicorn than like trying to get, be incredibly efficient with capital and, and resources. And now post pandemic, I'm, you know, I'm just a bit bemused is that where some markets and segments are going to be capital constrained again, not all, but some, you know, the, the tenants of lean, <laughs> people are dusting off. This is this is still pretty relevant, huh? Maybe we ought to. If we might be resource constrained and need to figure out where our new customers are today, or people's behavior has changed, and and demographics now matter more than ever, and regional differences, etc. Maybe we ought to use this methodology. Listen, just as a sidebar, I am stunned that 20 years after I came up with these ideas, that they're still relevant and in play. I'm probably the most bemused person to find out that they actually were some fundamental truths, not a fad. It's clear that I think some people still have, haven't read it or familiarized it. I wonder if you followed the uh, saga recently with Quibi. The- oh, yeah. Quibi was a guy actually wrote about Quibi when they first came out that said that that was my first aha, that infinite capital, you know, is another way to play the game. I mean, I'm not particularly dogmatic that says, well, if you don't use lean, it's you're cursed forever. No, you could buy your way out of, you know, lots of failures by just throwing more money at the ball. And that was okay until the pandemic hit and none of their assumptions were right. I mean, <laughs> I don't know if it's the pandemic. I mean, Quibi, you, you could imagine it launches in a completely normal environment and it's not obvious at all. It would get traction. It's just like spend a billion dollars up front and do a bunch of partnerships with no customer validation. It seems like a complete... Well, it was the antithesis of lean. And as I said, it, it could have worked and they could have looked like geniuses, but at least they now have a great excuse, <laughs> which is, oh, it's all about the pandemic. You know, people are now watching things on their screen. We, we made the assumption that everybody would be mobile, you know, and, and that the short form video would be um, the thing to do. And we, we could raise a billion dollars and screw all you guys about lean and testing and customers and hypotheses. You know, we're domain experts and we, you know, we built Disney and, you know, we, we know what we're doing. We ran HP. You know, I, I, I think it's an object lesson, but but even I would say it, it doesn't mean that one model has to dominate what's the right way to, to build large businesses. They took a very different bet. It was the antithesis of lean. You know, lots of people will now be dissecting it. Was it a failure because of the pandemic, because of product market fit? 
or because they just didn't follow some of the basics of testing any of their core hypotheses, which did people care about short form video? What percentage of people will be on browsers versus mobile, etc.? And by the way, even past short form video, were the videos even interesting, whether they're short or long form? You know, I didn't find them interesting, but I didn't think I was their target market either. So, and remember, it could have been, you know, remember if we're playing a Ponzi scheme, they could have flipped the damn thing to someone else, just like Walmart buying Jet. You know, it was like, right? It was like, oh, it doesn't matter. You know, uh, this is really interesting for entrepreneurs, given your audiences, entrepreneurs and investors. You know, entrepreneurs, at least founders who come in with to a startup with a pure heart, meaning, you know, I want to change the world or make a difference or build something else, kind of forget that they're aligning with people out of convenience who write checks who may like them and may kind of be interested in changing the world, but that's not their business model. Financial investors have a very different business model. They're interested in maximizing the returns. And yeah, if they change the world, some of them might actually give a shit, but that's not their, most of them don't really care. And I'm not making value judgments, but, but that, that alignment is kind of interesting. And therefore, while entrepreneurs might be happy, you know, to run a company for five, 10, 20 years, financial investors going like, no, 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 we're flipping this thing for a liquidity event or something else. Does that, I mean, I think that's a fair assessment, right? It's a great point and one that's not made explicit often. Well, no one wants to make it explicit, right? For the founders to admit it, they'd, they'd have to admit they've done a deal with the devil. For the financial investors, if you told every founder, we really, truly, honestly don't give a shit about your business. We, give a, we really want to make a lot of money. No one, you'd find some other investors. So people kind of pretend about, think of this as an arranged marriage that goes on for a while to, that people's interests are aligned until they become unaligned. And by the way, just, just let me throw out, it's the reason why we're seeing all these social justice issues also pop up in tech. That is, we don't optimize for social justice in, in tech investments. We don't, for any investments because there are no government regulations, you know, there are no rules, we optimize for, for you know, maximizing return. It seems like Chamath Palkatia is the first reaction from inside the industry to address some of these, these uh, I guess, conflicts. He's, at least in the new structure of his firm, he's trying to align himself, basically take a very long-term view of capital. Sure, but, you know, now the question is, if, if there is no level playing field, has he just put himself at a disadvantage for his fund and, and something else? You know, if you're a financial investor, the last words you want to hear is, you know, I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. But in fact, the role of regulation sometimes actually does help society move forward in a, in a way that's actually good in general. You know, one can imagine a case where we kind of level the playing field and, and say, yeah, I understand that the only goal you had was maximizing return, but let's throw a couple of other goals so we're all kind of burdened with them. But that's in general, it's good for long-term health of society. When one firm does that and other people could stand back and say, glad you're going to you know, play the game with one hand tied behind your back. I'm going to kick your butt from here to Sunday because of it. That's actually a bad lesson. How do we kind of fix these things that are that are kind of baked into our system, I think people are starting to ask those questions. And, and to be honest, I'd rather we ask those questions and figure out how do we level the playing field before there have been times in, in history where 
people did come with pitchforks and line people up against the wall when the underclass finally realized that the game was so rigged that uh, it, it wasn't going to be in their interest to help support it. That's a place I never want to imagine we get to, but, but one can't imagine as you're sitting in your house in the Hamptons that that might get there if we don't do something. I have, a, I guess, one final topic on chips, but I just want to circle back to Max. Did you have anything uh, you wanted to, to touch on before I go to the semiconductors? Yeah, I just wanted to go back quickly to um, what we've talked about early in the conversation around maximum number of entrepreneurs out there and kind of James throwing that idea in with, you know, at Google, if, if Google or Alphabet was dissolved, um, what would all these people do? And that obviously is a very unrealistic idea. So I just had the thought that it would be perhaps a little bit more realistic to capture those people a little bit early in their lives, perhaps in their education, during their education, and maybe set them on a path to actually become entrepreneurs. And and Steve, you, you, you talked earlier about your teaching. So I was curious, how do you see education in that context? Because if you look at, you know, what MBA stands for, it's massive business administration. And I don't think the word administration would kind of go in that direction of entrepreneurship and so forth. So have you seen any shift in curriculums or I guess you've been pushing that forward yourself with your work? So should people still still take MBAs? Do you think it's still relevant or, or what are we doing in terms of education? You know, Max, that's a great question. And uh, I was just kind of thinking about this. I have a friend who went to Harvard Business School and is now uh, going back to teach there as an adjunct. And one of his laments was that, you know, HBS compared to Stanford for entrepreneurship is like night and day. And it's not that there's no entrepreneurship at, at Harvard. Of course there is. And that Boston doesn't have an innovation ecosystem. Of course it does, though primarily in life sciences. But why was Stanford and other universities kind of now pulling out where HBS was thought of in the 20th century as the, you know, not only the gold standard, it was like so far above any other school. And, and I think what's really interesting, and, and I apologize for the digression, but HBS made its chops on the case study. And the case study was basically, a, you know, in-class simulation given a known set of facts of, you know, here's a case, you know, here's what's going on, here's the data, you know, how would you deal with this? which makes all the sense in the world when you're training managers for execution in repeatable processes. That is, you know, HBS was designed to, as you said, to train professional management class for, you know, essentially the American and then the international century of business. At Stanford and other places, we didn't have kind of this, this buy-in to cases. And so we were more amenable to other methods of teaching, teaching business and more importantly, teaching innovation entrepreneurship. And so when the Lean Startup became a class, we basically shot the how to write a business plan in the head along with case studies. And it's not like people don't teach cases anymore, but they're no longer the dominant thing for innovation entrepreneurship. What we realized for innovation entrepreneurship, to answer your question, is that we needed to build something radically different in business and engineering schools to train entrepreneurs. And that was hands-on, experiential, get out of the building, you know, as close to what a startup feels like. And we started that at Stanford 10 years ago, and it was adopted by the U.S. government to commercialize all science, called the i Innovation Corps, the National Science Foundation, National Institute of Health, Department of Defense adopted it. And then it became another program called Hacking for Defense. 
you know, I-Corps in like 100 universities in the U.S. Um, hacking for Defense is in 40, probably 100 plus schools now teach some version of these classes called the Lean Launchpad. So I, I, I think the the answer is there's a, another wave of, of how to train entrepreneurs that are radically different than how we trained professional management class based on cases. And again, the proof is the probably the difference between the stature of now Stanford's business school and Harvard's. And again, not to ding anything about Harvard's, it's still training world-class executors for, for existing corporations. But you go to Stanford if you want to learn how to, you know, do a startup. There's a 150 innovation entrepreneurship classes every quarter at Stanford. It's an incubator with dorms is how I think about faculty doesn't like me saying that, but that's what it feels like. <laughs> no, absolutely. James, go for yours. I read your blog recently on, on the U.S. and China semiconductor issue, and it's so funny. I did not think that you were, uh, I did not think that starting a blog with TSMC was going to end up with a map of the South Asia Sea and, and, and military bases. It was a fascinating read. You make a very strong point that, that you know, clearly the U.S. has woken up to the fact that its semiconductor dependency is extremely high. It's recently approved a, a fab from TSMC in Arizona, but that's only going to be like 4% of, of TSMC's total capacity in Taiwan. Do you think it's too late for, for the U.S. to try to rebuild its production capability domestically? Um, and how do you see it playing out overall? Yeah. So, you know, that's a question way above my pay grade, but being like every entrepreneur, I'm happy to answer something I know nothing about. <laughs> um, but, you know, I picked semiconductors because believe it or not, I would never said I was a semiconductor guy, but I did two chip startups out of my eight <laughs> companies. Listen, the, the chip issue I just happened to fixate on, but it's a symptom of a much bigger issue of how entwined the U.S. Uh, supply chain is with China. And that, you know, if we want to get into a a serious trade war, we might be shooting ourselves not only in the foot, in the, but in the head. And here was one small segment that a path to both disaster and like, like make sure we know what we're doing before we do this. And if I was sitting on the other side, I, I'd be laughing because like, you know, there's not too many wins for the U.S. here. You know, one could decide that you, if you got serious and needed to bring this stuff in-house, you know, luckily, the people who make the chip-making equipment, uh, most of them sit in the U.S., except for ASML, which is a Dutch company. And, and so you could reconstitute fabs. You know, obviously, TSMC uh, and Samsung have secret sauce of how that equipment is interconnected together. And, you know, in full disclosure, I'm on the Tech Advisory Board for Applied Materials, so I know a little bit about uh, the space. And, and I'm not advocating anything we could do, but it would be, it would cost us probably a hundred billion dollars to just replicate that part of the supply chain if TSMC went away. But one can imagine other parts of the supply chain, you know, power transformers, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's just medicines, you know, people understood, you know, when we, we had the scare about rare earth supplies for, for magnets and other materials. I mean, all those things could be reconstituted, but in a, in the last half of the 20th century, and certainly in the 21st, we had a bipartisan push to kind of outsource everything because, again, with all due respect to your listeners, we decided financial engineering for the bottom line was more important than our national interests or job security for the U.S. And because we demonized unions in the U.S., those were the only people who were trying to wave their hands going, this is a bad idea, shipping all this stuff offshore. And so we made someone else's economy boom while we destroyed ours. 
but we sure made a ton of profits with all those nice houses we have on the south shore of something. And now I think we're about to reap that whirlwind of our own making. So there's a bigger answer than, than chips. And I just picked that because, as I said, I was kind of interested in the following the thread. And for those of you who might want to see the detail, it's a blog post called Chip Wars. So if you just Google Steve Blank Chip Wars, you'll, you'll see my analysis of, of kind of between the rock and the hard place we're in, or more, more interestingly, the corner that we painted ourselves in of, about semiconductors. Yes, yes. And I definitely recommend the blog. It's a great overview of the situation and, and even the, the military prospects of how that could escalate. I guess, Steve, this has been great. I always end with, uh, do you have a, perhaps a, a recommendation or reference on a future podcast for us, given our discussions and, and mutual interests? Who do you think would be good for us to speak to next? I don't know a name, but you know, given the social unrest and the pandemic and whatever, you know, I would pick a couple of contrarians who see maybe a different future for markets and, and economies in different ways that uh, I would pick a couple of heretics. You know, I always like listening to the heretics because I laugh hysterically and then, you know, which I then used to ignore. And then I go, well, what if they obviously see something? And, you know, most of them are just like out of their minds. But, but almost always, if we look at some of the ideas, both not only business, but social things that we've adopted, it seemed insane. Uh, and I won't even get into the LGBT stuff. But for me as a kid, you know, if you got caught with a bag of marijuana, you, you were in jail and where I grew up. Now there are trucks going by in California that say international marijuana transporters. I mean, it was like, <laughs> what happens for, for, for what truly would have been heretical, you know, are you out of your mind? I think having some of those people on just to, just to kind of expand our minds of what ifs would be interesting. And I might follow with you offline on, on specifics since we don't name names. Yeah. And, and maybe wrong audiences or whatever, but just, just in my lifetime to see some of these changes about, you know, gay marriage and the rest and uh, all heading in a way that, that was just unimaginable and the impact it's had. And back to your audience, I think the impact that it's had on business and how we operate. And, and so the way we might actually see the future is not necessarily a linear extrapolation from the past. That's a big idea, and it could be interesting. That's a, that's a great way to end, end the show. Steve, it's been such a wonderful opportunity to talk to you and, and hearing all your insights. Thanks for taking the time. Well, thank you, and I appreciate the time of James, you and, uh, you and Matt. ARC thank believes you. that the information Bye-bye. presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.